I have been here 13 years at First Christian Church, <clears throat> and I'm about to reveal something that probably 99 point something percent of y'all uh, don't know about unless you were here first service. This is something that is a bit of a moment of vulnerability because uh, I don't really talk about this a whole lot. Um, in fact, as I spoke about this first service, this is probably the first time my wife has heard me say this kind of thing, this explicitly um, about myself, about me personally. So a little moment of vulnerability. I struggle with uh, thalassophobia. Does one person here know what thalassophobia is? If you weren't here first service. Yeah, uh, I had to look it up too. But I remember from my Greek class, it means, we'll put this up there for you because it's a mouthful, fear of the sea. Thalassophobia is fear of the sea. I struggle <laughs> with a fear of the sea, of the deep, dark, unknown abyss that we call the oceans. Go ahead and judge me, punk. I struggle with thalassophobia. Now, it's not clinical. <laughs> no one has diagnosed me. Uh, but I very, very much do not want to experience whatever it is that I must experience in order for someone to clinically diagnose me. I don't want to do that. I really do kind of have this fear of, of, of large amounts of water <laughs> coming together in one place. Uh, to form anything larger than my three-year-old daughter's kiddie pool. Seriously, I don't like lots of water. And this isn't just rhetorical license. This isn't just sort of, you know, exaggerated preacher talk to make a point. I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I, I really do hate lots of water. And I have good reason. I do. Well, I have what I feel are, are good reasons. <laughs> no, they're, they're actually good reasons. Uh, when I was five, when I was five, my dad used to take me swimming at the Milligan College swimming pool uh, in Johnson City. He used to go to the Milligan College swimming pool, and that's when I first began to realize that I had sort of this fear of the deep. Uh, in, in, my, in my mind, I have this picture of standing there next to the pool as a five or six-year-old, just sort of numb, frozen, freaked out, because I couldn't trust that the bottom of that huge swimming pool wouldn't literally open up and swallow me whole as a five or six-year-old. I really felt like that about it. So that's kind of where my fear of the deep end began, you know, <laughs> the Milligan stampede. Five-year-old boy literally swallowed by bottom of pool. Shuts down Lacey Fieldhouse. So that's kind of where it began for me. That's my first memory of my fear of the deep. And then when I was a little older, uh, in elementary school, just a couple, few years older, one of my best friends had a pool in the back, and his older brother, 12, 13, uh, used to think it was hilarious, yeah, really funny, to take me and, and dunk me and keep me under until so, I was gasping for breath, uh, couldn't breathe, that kind of thing, let me up, allow me to get my bearings, you know, and then do it again. Real hilarious. And then to top it all off, same year, about seven, eight years old, something like that, in California, in a little, little bay in California, I was sailing with my dad in a tiny little sailboat, just kind of trolling back and forth, uh, minding our own business, no big deal, learning to do the tack thing, you know, with, with sailing and uh, minding our own business when all I remember is suddenly out of nowhere, this huge 70-foot power yacht was barreling right at us. And, and I looked up 
And all I know was it was yards from my face, totally overran us, broke the little sailboat. And the next thing I remember after going under for a little while was coming up and I saw the back of that big 70-foot power yacht moving away from me just a few yards from my face. Came out alive somehow. It's a miracle. You didn't know I'm a miracle, did you? But all I know about that entire incident is this thing was coming right at my face. Moments later, I saw it going away. I do not like large amounts of water coming together in one place to form what I feel like is my watery grave. I hate it. I don't like it. To this day, I don't really like to deep into the pool. So if you see me at the Y, sort of jittery, that's because I struggle with something like uh, thalassophobia. Now, the ocean, not even to speak of a little bay in California or my friend's backyard pool or the deep into the pool at the Y or Milligan College, the ocean is an abyss. Let's just speak empirically. Let's just speak about, speak of the facts of the matter. It's gargantuan and scary in a way that none of us really understands. I mean, scary monsters live there. Ships sink in it. Tides sweep tourists into it. Truth. Truth. It's called the riptide. Look it up. (laughs) I do my studying. The ocean is empirically an undomesticated and undomesticated universe over which you and I have no control. That's true. It's not just an idea that's, you know, scary for me because I struggle with thalassophobia. We're talking empirically. The ocean abyss is an undomesticated universe you and I cannot control. That is how the ancient civilizations always spoke of the oceans. They called it chaos. Because... It was an undomesticated universe they had little control over. They knew very little about it. Friends, we know very little about it. Most of the biologists and scientists today call the oceans the last frontier because we know more about space than we do about the deep abyss. So stay away from it. (laughs) Now I say all that Because this is where Scripture begins. You might not have heard Genesis 1 spoken about in these terms before, but this is literally where Scripture begins. It begins with creation as this sort of watery chaos. And what we mean by that is not just that there was lots of water, but that they conceived of the world as a world of water. There was nothing but water. It's how they conceived of it in the first place. There was no sea, no skies, no land, no animals, no people. It was just nothing but water, not down here, all the way up. They didn't know that there was sky. And that's where Scripture begins. And one of the primary ways that Genesis 1 tells this story is the story of God ordering that chaos. Ordering that watery chaos. And we'll see why as we continue to look in here. Jump in at Genesis 1, 1 with me. And we'll go a little bit at a time here. 
to sort of unpack where we get this. Listen, friends, we can tell the story of Genesis 1 a bunch of different ways with a bunch of different details. I'm going to be missing some things, leaving out some things on purpose. Today is not meant to be exhaustive, but today is meant to let you understand that this is a story of God ordering the chaos, ordering my thalassophobia, really. I mean, that's what this is. God is ordering my thalassophobia. Let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is, uh, in Hebrew, a sentence with seven words, which is a way of saying God's perfect. He's got this under control. He's made everything that is. Everything that you see that exists is complete and whole because God made it. And it's a statement about his character and his nature. And if you'll notice, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, God is the main subject in the first sentence of Scripture as a way of saying he's going to remain the main subject throughout the entirety of the Bible. His existence here is never argued for, but always assumed. His identity as sovereign creator of the universe, capital S-U and capital S-C and U, sovereign creator of the universe, his identity as that is never uncovered. It's not discovered. It's not argued for. You won't find proofs because in Scripture it is merely recognized as true. And it happens right there in verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, self-existent, self-sustaining creator of the universe, is he exists and he made all that is it it is this self-existent and self-sustaining god of the universe who it says created the heavens and the earth this word created here is a word that is only used throughout scripture with god as the subject this verb created is only used with God as the subject. There are other words for created, made, things like that throughout Scripture, but none of those are reserved exclusively for God. And this concept about his creation is important here. This verb created here means that God took chaotic, purposeless, godless, not his presence stuff that had no purpose and made it work for his purpose, made it work properly. He gave that chaotic stuff a function. He made matter matter. That's an important concept for us here to understand in this word create. This creation here uh, is not what we um, often talk about as ex nihilo as much as we may think it is. Ex nihilo is talked about in lots of other places in Scripture. It's a biblical term. It's 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 a godly way to think about creation. But this isn't the place to get that evidence. This is God taking stuff that was there that was purposeless, godless, empty and void, it will call it, and saying this is the purpose for which I want you to live and exist and move and breathe. Because listen, if I'm not doing it, if I, the self-existent, self-sustaining God of the universe, am not the one inhabiting this matter, then that matter doesn't matter. That's what's going on here in Genesis 1. So verse 1 tells us that this self-existent, self-sustaining God created, it says, the heavens and the earth. Created all that is, everything that is. It's a way of taking two words together to have this one concept of everything. And, and they chose here heavens and earth as a way of saying all that stuff that's beyond what you can see, heavens and earth, all that stuff that you can see, meaning everything. So verse 1, 
in the beginning, self-existent, self-sustaining God gave purpose to everything. That's verse 1. This is a summary statement, verse 1, of everything that follows. But there's a problem afoot here. And it starts right in verse 2. Verse 2 describes an ominous situation at the beginning of God's creative activity. Keep reading there. It says, The earth was without form and void. This phrase here, without form, uh, without form and void, in the Hebrew is pronounced uh, with sort of a rhythm and cadence to it. Uh, Genesis 1 is, a, is in poetic form. It's in uh, poetry form. And it's pronounced in the Hebrew without form and void. Tohu wabohu. Tohu wabohu. Which kind of sounds like something a Hawaiian surfer might say, right? <laughs> Tohu wabohu, dude. Um, but it's actually not intended to be this sort of cool, chill, kind of like, relaxed kind of concept. Uh, it's actually a little bit the opposite. It's like the kind of thing that might sound like tohu wabohu, which is maybe something that, you know, uh, some Polynesian sumo wrestler might say to you before he, you know, snaps you like a twig. So it's a little more of that kind of meaning than the like Hawaiian surfer meaning, okay? So tohu wabohu is a bit of an ominous situation. Now, it's not ominous because there's evil involved, yet that comes later. Scripture talks about that later, but not at this point. Creation itself is not evil. Matter is not evil. It's just saying that matter right here has no purpose. God's presence isn't informing the matter. So the matter doesn't matter. So the problem here, the tohu wabohu problem, is that God's purposes are not being lived out with this creation here. That's the problem. And this, is, this isn't a statement just about, about a watery chaos world. This is a statement about us. This is a statement about why we exist. So that God can inhabit us. That God can make our matter matter. So tohu wabohu is a bad thing, not because of some presence of evil. That comes later. Tohu wabohu is a bad thing because creation here lacked God's purpose. That's fundamental to understand here. Still in verse 2, still in verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness was over the face of the deep of the deep, the chaos. They called it a chaos. Darkness is over the face of the chaotic abyss of the deep waters. And I'm not just making this up. This concept is what Genesis is talking about here. And what you have to understand here is that in the ancient world, they pictured the world uh, before God came and inhabited matter and made it matter. They pictured the world not just as this mass of unformed material, but as a world of water. Meaning, the whole thing was water. There was no light. There was no land. There was no sky. There were no animals. There was no people. There was nothing but a world of water absolutely everywhere from top to bottom, left to right, as far as the eye could or could not see, which sounds, for the thalassophobic types like me, horrifying. You can't breathe. You can't live. That's not a place where any of us can live. That's tohu wabohu. That's a problem. That's a problem. So it helps us understand why Genesis paints the picture here of a formless and empty 
world, a world devoid of God's purpose. Now, that is the chaos, that is the disorder, that is the purposeless world into which God spoke. Keep reading. Verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is a picture of, of God hovering like a bird about to care for its young. That's kind of the picture of hovering there. And it's, and it's a picture of God, the anticipation of God doing something. Creation itself is waiting for this self-existent, self-sustaining God that is over creation to do something, to do creation uh, so that it lives as God intends. And that's the situation to which God speaks. Verse 3, God said... We're going to move a little faster here. God said, let there be light. And there was light, which means we can work with this. We're getting somewhere. It's developing. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Boom, day one. Look at verse 6 for day two. God said, we're going to spend a little bit of time here on verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. We're going to look at that word expanse especially there. This word expanse is the Hebrew word rakia. Rakia is R-A-Q-I-A. Some translations used to call this the firmament. You've probably heard that. Uh, This Hebrew word rakia is the word for dome. D-O-M-E. And it was thought by the Jews to be a solid but see-through dome that held up the waters because of verse 6. That's how the the Jews conceived of it, because of verse 6. It was a solid and yet see-through dome that held up the waters, which is why they thought the sky and waters were blue. Solid but see-through dome. You can hear that solid kind of thing in the word firmament, right? That's the word we used to use for it. Uh, Firmament has that solidity in it. So verse 6 is basically saying, into this watery, chaotic world, let there be a rakia. Let there be a dome. So God made space and air in the middle of this watery world. Look at what it says, verses 7 and 8. God made the expanse, the rakia, the dome, and separated the water the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was an evening and morning the second day. We're going to have a little fun with this word rakia for just a minute here. (laughs) To help you remember what is meant by this word rakia, which means dome, we wrote a little song and put together a little video to help us understand what this conception of the world is that's going on here in Genesis 1. It's a little sort of whiteboard animation with some cheesy music behind, uh, thanks to Chris Carlson. I think you'll actually kind of like it. It'll help us remember that Rakia is a dome. Dome, sweet dome. Turn it up. There we go. Boy, I sure do remember old Rocky up in the middle of the sky. Back before the rain did ever fall and before humans died. 
I know you're all going to want that on Facebook later. We'll post that so you can uh, show your friends how dorky your, your pastor is. <clears throat> Even though it's a little bit silly, now you can actually see, picture a little bit what we're talking about here. You can see what the rakia does. The rakia fixes the problem of a world without God's presence in it. And it's the beginning of a process in Genesis 1 of God forming a world in which we can live. The rakia begins to order the chaos. Listen, God is giving us ground on which to stand. This isn't just about the creation of the earth. This isn't just about the creation of the world. This is about your life. God is ordering what would be a purposeless life for all of us. He's giving us ground on which to stand. He's giving us a place to grow what we need to live. Keep reading. This is great. The Bible is so cool. Verse 9, keep reading. God said, let the waters under the expanse be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. Praise Jesus. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Absolutely, because now we can breathe. Verse 11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Do you see what's happening here? The, the Bible is telling us about the story of God giving us a place on which to stand. A ground in which to grow food. A place to live. Without the presence of God, moving to order the chaos, you and I wouldn't breathe. We wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have ground on which to stand. Keep reading verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. The previously overwhelming darkness of the deep where nothing lived is now a world where we can grow. God took chaos, turned it into order, and created an environment where life can thrive. Friends, in the simplest way I can say it, when your life feels disordered, it's because you've refused God's order in some form or fashion. 
Listen, this, this account about the creation of the world isn't just about an earth where you can live. This is a metaphor for your whole life, for your very existence. It's because you are setting aside the wisdom of God that you experience the disorder and the chaos. Refusing God's order is embracing chaos. Refusing God's design for the world is to embrace a world apart from His presence. Where is the disorder in your life? That's the area where you have set aside God's wisdom. What does baptism have to do with all this? Eventually in the New Testament, baptism grabs up all this meaning of water throughout. And and, and baptism becomes a commitment to God's order. A commitment to God's design. It's a way of saying publicly, I put my faith and my trust in the God who made the world where I can live. Baptism is saying I'm committed to God's order even when I don't feel like it, when I feel like my life's underwater and I can't find a place to stand, even if it feels like a water world where I can't breathe, even if I'm struggling with thalassophobia, I trust God because He's the creator of the universe who sustains this place and gives me ground on which to stand. Psalm 40 talks about how God draws us up from the pit of destruction out of the miry clay and sets our feet on a rock, makes our feet secure. Friends, that's what God does. And baptism is acknowledging that God created and ordered the world in a certain way. When we are baptized, when we go under that water, we are submitting to that order. We are dying to that old way, that old way of life that is disorder and chaos and emptiness and formless and that's devoid of God's purpose and presence. When we go under, we're saying, that old me is dead. We come up, we say, the new me acknowledges that God is creator of the whole universe and gives me a ground on which to stand. If you can't submit to God's order in the world, His design for your life, the way He says you should live, don't get baptized. You're not ready. (laughs) If you can't say, I submit to God's order and design for the world. If you have been baptized, then you have already recognized that you submitted to God's order. Which means growing in your understanding that God's design for every aspect of our lives is our guide. It comes, that, it comes to every area of our lives that His design is what we follow. Your relationships with your spouse, your kids, your boss, other people's spouses, your enemies, your sexuality, your vocation, creation, and how you work with creation itself, how you treat your pets. It doesn't matter the context. 
Everything is about the order of God's creation and fitting in it appropriately so that you bring Him as Creator glory. Then you will understand. Then you will understand how it fits to be a part of God's created order. You'll be in the sweet spot of who God made you to be. Until then, you won't be. You see, friends, for the follower of Jesus, baptism isn't just this one-time dunking thing. (laughs) Baptism is a worldview. It's a way of seeing reality. It's a way of understanding that submission to God's order for the planet is the only way to be raised to life. It's been called by somebody a tomb and a womb. It's a tomb because we die. The old me is gone. The dependence upon my ways. Being sure that my, my order for life is the right way. That dies. It goes under. It's held under. Figuratively and dies. And it's a womb because we are born anew. To say God's order for my life is what I want to follow. That's what it means to go public with your faith. Let's pray, friends.